For, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Matt Covington, and I'm here representing the teaching team here this morning. And I'll be leading us through our second week of looking at the book of Acts. I want to start out, though, with a personal illustration. And it's, it's one that actually, after an evening of wrestling with this passage and trying to make sense of it, I woke up in the middle of the night and remembered this story. And um, then I kind of thought, well, maybe that's what's going on in this passage. And the story, um, if many of you know me, I'm a pretty obsessed caver. So the story is a caving story. And it starts in the remote mountains of Oaxaca, Mexico. There you have some of the deepest caves in the world, and one cave in particular called Cheve, which might in fact be the deepest cave in the world, something like the Everest of caves. So cavers are, are drawn to this place. In 2004, we discovered a new cave in this area called J2, and it looked like it might be the key to unlocking the great depths of Cheve. Over three years, we explored and mapped that cave. We pushed it to a depth of about 4,000 vertical feet, a distance of about five miles from the entrance. Moving this distance through a cave is not easy. Uh, it typically took two or three days to get from the entrance just to the bottom of the cave, one way. So a trip to the bottom and back out is gonna take you about a week. In our third year of exploration though, just as it was really starting to look good, the cave was getting big, we reached an impasse. The cave hit a sump, which is what cavers call when the passage goes completely underwater. And we had just enough dive equipment to send a single diver into the sump to take a look and see what was there. And he returned with the news that the sump was shallow, but it was 800 feet long. At that point, it opened into a, a giant tunnel filled with air on the other side. But it was a serious sump, and we were not prepared to explore it on that expedition. And actually, we prepared over the next three years. The team planned, prepared for this major diving effort at the bottom of this cave. And I was not a cave diver. For me, the sump was the end. That, you know, that's it. What? I, I don't go there. But the more I thought about it, I really wanted to keep exploring this cave. And in the final year, I found myself training to be on the dive team for, for the expedition. Within a period of just a few months, I got my scuba diving certification, advanced scuba diving certification, intro to cave diving certification. I started doing rebreather training with the dive team. We were diving on rebreathers, which recycle the air that you breathe out and give you much longer duration on a tank. But they're also complicated to use. And that was a whirlwind. And it turned out that was not enough. A little over a month into the expedition, I was chosen as one of the two lucky cavers who got to be part of the first push to explore on the other side of the sump. Marcin Gala, a Polish caver here in this picture, and I. And we were to dive and set up a camp on the other side and start exploring and mapping. And I was a little intimidated, but I thought I was prepared. I thought I had what I needed. My dive into the sump would show me otherwise. There was a series of problems. The dry suit that had been hauled into the cave for me to use didn't fit very well, it leaked. The mask I was supposed to use also didn't leak. You can see here, it's about half full of water. It would fill with water about every 30 seconds. The rebreather I was using was very smart. It had gone past its service date and was complaining a lot about that. There was no way for us to reset it in the cave. 
And so as soon as you started diving, you look at your, your display, and there was this googly-eyed face that would flash, saying, abort, 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 <laughs> and the mouthpiece would vibrate. Okay, like things that really can make you nervous when you're trying to stay calm. Okay, and as we prepared for the dive, my dive partner, Marcin, was a lot more efficient than I was, and he got quick, ready quickly and got in the water, and I was still fumbling around with my gear. And he started to get cold sitting there in the water by the time I was ready to go. And so he was like, you know, we've got, we've got to get out of here. So we started into the sump, and Marcin raced away, and I was trying to keep up with him, um, struggling along. And I started getting really out of breath which is something you shouldn't do when you're diving, and something you really shouldn't do when you're diving on a rebreather. And I just, you know, I just couldn't catch my breath. The alarms were going off. I started to get this sense of panic. And um, I thought, okay, I've, I've got to bail out. I've got to go to my emergency gas that I have on this other tank with a regular regulator on it. And I spit the rebreather out of my mouth and grabbed the other regulator and took half of a breath of air and felt the resistance as it stopped. Panic's again setting in, and I think, oh yeah, we turn off the valves on these tanks so that we don't lose the gas. So I fumble around and find the valve and open it, and I can start breathing again, okay. Um, but at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely panicked and just swimming as fast as I can to try to get out of the other side of the sump. And a few minutes later, I reached the other side of the sump with Marcin there waiting for me. Um, my dry suit was half full of water when I stood up. It was full to my knees, and my gear was all in disarray. I was lucky to be alive. And as I reflected later on my experience, I realized what I had been lacking. In some sense, I had the gear I needed, even if it wasn't quite optimal. I had the diving certifications. What I didn't have was the spirit of calmness and control that you need in order to um, be a safe cave diver. Um, when done well, cave diving is kind of a zen-like thing where you're calm, you're rational, breathing slowly, you're a bit detached. A panicked cave diver can quickly become a dead cave diver. And I simply did not have the time and experience underwater with that whirlwind um, training in order to be able to calmly handle the situation once things started going awry. So I made it, but it wasn't pretty. And in the passage that we're going to study today, I think we find the disciples in a similar situation. So following the ascension of Jesus and preceding the arrival of the Holy Spirit, the disciples are fumbling in the dark. They didn't have the power, and specifically the Spirit, that they needed to accomplish their mission. So before we dive into the passage here, I wanna, wanna open us up with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would um, just speak to us in this passage, um, that you would show us the message you have for us, and that you would open our hearts and our minds so that we're receptive to that message. Okay, so now we're gonna read through this week's passage. So they left the mountain called Olives and returned to Jerusalem. It was a little over half a mile. They went to the upper room they had been using as a meeting place. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They agreed they were in this for good, 
completely together in prayer, the women included. Also Jesus' mother Mary and his brothers. During this time, Peter stood up in the company. There were about 120 of them in the room at the time and said, friends, long ago the Holy Spirit spoke through David regarding Judas, who became the guide to those who arrested us. That scripture had to be fulfilled and now has been. Judas was one of us and had his assigned place in this ministry. As you know, he took the evil bribe money and bought a small farm. There he came to a bad end, rupturing his belly and his guts spilling out. Everybody in Jerusalem knows this by now. They call the place Field of Blood. It's exactly what we find written in the Psalms. Let his farm become haunted so no one can ever live there. And also what was written later, let someone else take over his post. Judas must now be replaced. The replacement must come from the company of men who stayed together with us from the time Jesus was baptized by John up to the day of his ascension, designated along with us as a witness to his resurrection. They nominated two, Joseph Barsabbas, nicknamed Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, You, O God, know every one of us inside and out. Make plain which of these two men you choose to take the place in this ministry and leadership that Judas threw away in order to go his own way. Then they drew straws, cast lots. Matthias was one, or Matthias won and was counted in with the eleven apostles. So when I first read this passage and realized I was going to have to teach on it, my response was, what in the world are we supposed to make of that? Jesus ascends to heaven, tells the disciples, wait here in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. And within a few days later, they're drawing straws to figure out who should take Judas's spot. The scripture here is unclear on the meaning of all of this. Were they acting in God's will or were they wandering astray? In reality, this passage may raise more questions than it provides answers. However, I think that for that reason, it also provides us with a great opportunity to try to wrestle through this waiting time alongside the early church. One of the books that we've been reading with the teaching team is a book called 30 Years That Changed the World by Michael Green. And when talking about the first chapter of Acts, he says, we tend to think that the outreach in Acts begins in chapter two. Chapter one normally gets far less attention with the exception of the promise in 1.8 that you will receive power. Indeed, the rest of the chapter is puzzling and apparently unhelpful. So he actually then goes on to disagree with that sentiment, that it's puzzling and unhelpful, or at least that it's unhelpful. And to explain his thoughts on what we can learn from that passage, and I'll actually lean pretty heavily on, on his thoughts of this passage in the, the sermon today. While Acts is ambiguous on whether or not the apostles were aligned with God's will in the replacement of Judas, and the bizarre to us practice of casting lots to make a decision, there are a few things that we do know. In all decisions made throughout the remainder of Acts, they never use this practice of casting lots again. Um, we see them make decisions because of, of visions or the Spirit speaking. We also see them make a lot of decisions on their own based on what their, you know, their best guess is what, what would Jesus do, you know? We, we see them make lots of decisions that way. 
We don't see them cast lots again. We also never hear of Matthias again. Many commentators argue that ultimately, Jesus chose Paul as the 12th apostle. Um, and, and that that broadened the meaning of what it was to be an apostle. It didn't have to be someone who was a direct witness, but simply someone who was going and bearing witness. And I think it's also helpful to view this passage in the context of the events that precede it and follow it, and the context of the personalities involved and their cultural presuppositions. With the departure of, of Jesus and before the Holy Spirit arrives, the disciples find themselves, in a very real sense, detached from God's direct guidance. They're disconnected. I'm not sure I know exactly how that would feel or exactly what it would mean about their prayers or their interactions with each other, but in some sense, they're on their own. It's a dark time of waiting and uncertainty and likely doubt. They don't even really know what they're waiting for or how long they will have to wait. They only know that Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes. They must have also been very troubled by what happened with Judas. How could they make sense of this? How could one of the chosen apostles, Jesus chose him, have, have betrayed Jesus? Now, what does that make of Jesus' choice? Was it flawed? They probably spent hours debating this and, and worrying about it and trying to figure out what it meant. In terms of cultural context, we know that they were still harboring ethnic hopes of restoration of the worldly kingdom of Israel. The last thing they ask Jesus before he ascends into heaven is, Master, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Is this the time? Jesus doesn't even tell them, no, that's not the point. You guys don't get it. He just says, you don't know the time. Timing is the Father's business. And that really leaves open to them the possibility of this physical restoration of Israel. Perhaps they thought that's what they were waiting for. And then you have the significance of the fact that there were 12 apostles, which mirrors the 12 tribes of Israel. This was not lost on them, and 11 was just not going to cut it. And then there's this decision of, of or this, this casting lots, which is pretty strange to us. Um, but it wouldn't have been quite as strange to them. It was a common practice in the temple and, and, and in the old covenant. We see it mentioned in Proverbs 16.33, which says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. So they did make decisions this way. However, in this sense, they're also grasping back at the old things, the things they're familiar with, and they're not leaning forward into the new covenant that Jesus provides. Finally, we can also consider the person of Peter. If we know anything about Peter, it's that he's a man of action, and uh, he's not going to sit waiting in a room 10 days and, and abide that very well. This, this is just not, he, he can't do it, Right? And with this context in mind, the picture that makes the most sense to me goes something like this. After days of waiting and perhaps growing unrest and debate about what to make of Judas' Jesus, betrayal, Peter's had enough. He stands up to face the room. He quotes a psalm and uses it to explain what Judas had to betray Jesus. It, it's prophesied in, in this psalm. Then he quotes a second psalm and he uses it to argue, well, Judas should be replaced 
They choose a couple of disciples that have been with them from the beginning. They don't know exactly how to proceed towards a decision, and so they use the tried-and-true approach of casting lots. While the Scripture does not give us a black-and-white explanation of whether or not the disciples were carrying out God's will in this decision, I'm inclined to think that they were not. That at best, what they were doing was of no importance. At worst, it was idolatry. In the latter case, the idol would be the disciples' personal and ethnic ambitions to bring about a new worldly kingdom of Israel. It wouldn't be the first time that we've seen God's people turn their eyes towards idols during a time of waiting for God to speak. We certainly see that when Moses goes up onto the mountain and comes back and finds the Israelites worshiping a calf. How often do we do this ourselves? How often do we take our own ambitions, the ideals of our culture, and attempt to impose them on God's plans? Within the time period between the Ascension and Pentecost, I think that we see the disciples err in two ways. First, we saw in last week's passage, we saw the reaction to the Ascension. I'll read from that. As they watched, he was taken up and disappeared in a cloud. They stood there, staring into the empty sky. Suddenly, two men appeared in white robes. They said, you Galileans, why are you just standing here looking up at the empty sky? This very Jesus who was taken up from among you to heaven will come as certainly and mysteriously as he left. So their first response when Jesus ascends is like, uh, maybe if we stand here long enough, he's going to come back. Uh, well, you know, what now? And angels have to correct this. It's like, come on, guys. Go back to Jerusalem. So the first error is one of passivity. This, well, what do we do now? And God uses us through our actions, which is why this is an error. So passivity was not the right posture to be prepared to be used by God. In this week's passage, we see the disciples take action to replace Judas. But it appears as if perhaps their motives are warped in doing this. And that they're trying to replace God's plan with their own ambitions. Now, I don't want to come down too hard here on the apostles. I think we can learn from these two mistakes. We can learn not to fall into the twin traps of passivity or trying to bend God's purpose towards our own desires. However, I also think we can learn from what they did right during this period of time. In chapter 2, they will receive the Holy Spirit. So during this waiting time, they must also have been doing something right in order to be receptive to that. So what is it that they've done to put themselves in the correct posture, the posture of readiness to receive the Spirit? First off, they're obedient. They did what Jesus told them to do. They stayed in Jerusalem. They waited. And think about how hard this must have been. Imagine the uncertainty. How long do we have to wait? What will it be like when the Spirit comes? How do we even know when the Spirit has come? They're waiting without really knowing for sure what they're waiting for or how long they're waiting. And they wait for 10 days. 10 days isn't really all that long, but you're, when you're in a crowded room with 120 of your best friends, or maybe 120 of the random people that got picked up along the way is more like it, 
waiting 10 days must have been excruciating. One passage in Michael Green's book, 30 Years That Changed the World, hit me particularly hard where he's talking about obedience. He says this, It would probably not be an exaggeration to say that disobedience is one of the main characteristics of modern Christianity. We know what Jesus teaches, but we do not do it. Disobedience in sexual morals, in relationships, in attitudes to those who make life hard for us. Disobedience in lack of hospitality, in begrudging our money, in unwillingness for change. Our disobedience is not marginal to our lives, it is central. We do not make time to spend with God, but give it all to our work and our pleasure. We do not set our affections on things above and find treasure in heaven, but are more materialistic than in any previous generation has ever been. We do not obey the Lord's last command to go and make disciples. Instead, we are hesitant about the content of the good news and reluctant to talk about it. Ouch. Does, Does that hit you guys as hard as it hits me? So we can learn a great deal about the obedience exhibited by the members of the early church. The way that they laid their lives down to carry out God's mission. In some sense, obedience is the minimum qualification for God to use us. It's it's the least of what he needs. He can do the rest if we follow his direction. The second observation we can make about the disciples during this period of time is that they were in unity. The scripture says they agreed they were in this for good, completely together in prayer, the women included. Also Jesus' mother Mary and his brothers. They agreed they were in it together. This builds a foundation for trust and opens a path towards greater risk-taking. We can risk more when we're supporting one another. God's Spirit works through community. In our hyper-individualistic culture, we often stress that Christianity is about our personal relationship with God. If that's what we think Christianity is about, then we've missed the boat. The metaphor that Jesus uses continually and that we see throughout Acts is the metaphor of the kingdom of God. It's not just a right relationship between us and God. It's all of God's people within a right relationship to one another and to God. When the world looks at the church today, do they see unity? I think not. Perhaps one of the most apparent facts about the church is its divisions. You drive around Fayetteville and that immediately becomes clear. Division also appears to be one of the defining elements of our culture within America today. Think of the powerful witness that the church would have if it were a beacon of unity. Michael Green notes, It is only when men and women are clearly being reconciled with one another, despite all their differences, that skeptics will stop and take notice of the reconciler. It's here that we also hit on one of the central themes of Luke and Acts something that was clearly important to the author. Unity beyond all cultural, ethnic, and political boundaries. In the passage today, we see that Luke says they were all there together, including the women. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, 
and Acts, the author makes a point of emphasizing the inclusivity of the gospel. He points out the roles of women in many more places than in the other gospels. Luke makes it clear that the gospel transcends all of our cultural boundaries. It reaches rich and poor, men and women, sophisticated and simple, elite and outcast, Jew and Gentile, Samaritan, Ethiopian, Greek and Roman, everybody. In the passage today, the followers have not yet fully realized this vision. But their unity is the seed that makes it possible. What has started as a bunch of Galileans focusing inwardly on their own ethnic ambitions will be turned inside out by the Holy Spirit and will create the explosion that carries the good news of the kingdom of God to all people and nations. Grace Church, how can we break down the walls and divisions within our community and within God's church more broadly? The third observation I want to make is that the disciples were steeped in prayer. The text emphasizes that they were continually praying during this period. And that was perhaps the most important activity they could undertake in order to prepare themselves to receive the Holy Spirit. And here we surely have room to learn from their example. Uh, I'll be the first to admit that at small group, when it comes time to pray, I'm the first one that starts staring at the floor, looking, becoming really interested in my phone. Um, you know, somehow this is an awkward thing for us. And I want to think, how can we battle that? How can we battle that reluctance and that awkwardness and encourage prayer to be a more central and natural part of our community? So the worship team can go ahead and come back up now. I want to think about one final question, though, that, that um, sort of stalked me while I was wrestling with this passage, which is, why the gap? Why couldn't the Spirit have descended right after Jesus ascended, or even while he was still there? What was God's purpose behind leaving his followers hanging for 10 days? I don't know the answer to that question, but I do have some ideas And I suspect that there are many facets to his purpose here. There was perhaps a practical aspect. The 10 days of waiting brought them to the harvest festival of Pentecost, when there would be Jewish people from all over the world gathered together in Jerusalem. And we see the Holy Spirit uses that to great effect. However, I also wonder whether the disciples needed time to prepare, time to gain gain the correct posture, Time to see they couldn't go it alone and push forward on their own power. Time to see they didn't have what it takes. Perhaps they needed to feel the contrast between trying to go it on their own and moving forward with the power of the Holy Spirit. While they may have made some stumbles during this time, we can also take comfort in the fact that God still used them powerfully. Our stupid mistakes and misguided decisions are not going to thwart God's purpose. Now we're going to move into a time of communion. And as we do this, I want you to reflect on the message today and realize that we have a concrete opportunity to practice making ourselves receptive to the Spirit. Jesus told us to do this in remembrance to him. We can be obedient to that command.
Communion, in its very name, is a practice of community. We break bread together. It's a practice of unity together in remembering what Christ has done for us, in accepting his gift, and giving up our own selfish ambitions, and leaning forward into his kingdom. We can also use this as a time of prayer. So if you feel led to do so, find someone to pray with, either in your seats or in the back of the sanctuary. Our communion table is open to all who are seeking Jesus, and we don't dismiss by rose, so you can partake as you please. 